millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Jonathan Joe. Jonathan Joe has a mouth like an O and a wheelbarrow full of surprises. If you ask for a bat or for something like that, he has got it, whatever the size is. If you're wanting a ball, it's no trouble at all. Why, the more that you ask for, the merrier. Like a hoop and a top and a watch that won't stop and some sweets and an Aberdeen terrier. Jonathan Joe has a mouth like an O, but this is what makes him so funny. If you give him a smile, only once in a while, then he never expects any money. Oh. So that insight into the exploitation of the, uh, the rural, working, working class. Yeah, I think he was the gardener, right? By the work, I think he probably was the gardener, Jonathan <laughs> Joe. Welcome to the Curiously Specific Book Club, the podcast that is curiously specific about dates and locations in well-known books. Every episode, we take a book out into the wild to see if the world of fiction matches up with the real world. Hello, my name is Tim Wright. I'm a digital writer and a producer of immersive fiction. Uh, And I'm Lloyd Shepard. I'm a writer and a digital producer. And that reading you heard at the uh, front of this podcast was from When We Were Very Young... Yes. By A.A. Milne. Or When We Were Very Rich. Uh, when We Became Very Rich. <laughs> by A.A. Milne. Uh, decorations, as it says on my copy. Decorations by E.H. Shepard. Decorations, is that what they call it? Yeah, yeah. That's unbelievable. Not the illustrations by. He, he's at least 50% of this book, I'd say. Yeah, and he made 150 quid out of it. Nice. He's, uh, he's Jonathan Joe. Yeah, he's Jonathan Joe. <laughs> He'll never ask you for much money. We had some fun with this one. So we're going to take this book out for a in the first episode or first part of this episode uh, for a bit of a walk around London yes we're going to go to Buckingham Palace well we're going to go to Christopher Robin's sort of urban universe we aren't are. we basically we're going to go to his house we're going to go to the place where his mother disappears to well that's a good point isn't it we're going to go to the zoo the Buckingham Palace and then we have to work out where is the end of town yeah as his mother walks down to that's the, the puzzle uh, and then uh, in part two we're going to go a little bit further afield we're going to go down into uh, first of all we're going to go to a golf club of course well, actually, you took me to an abandoned golf club which is very exciting Scooby Doo <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't take you to a real one Scooby Doo style <laughs> uh, then we're going to go to a, a lovely cottage called Decoy down in Sussex that was lovely uh, and then we're going to end up at a place called Cotchford Farm I'm not going to tell you what else is at Cotchford Farm but you can probably work it out for yourself if you know anyone well they might not be able to work out what happens there and the theme of this this uh, podcast is going to be the world before poo yeah so if you're looking for more Winnie the Pooh 
don't come here. Don't come it. Don't come asking here for poo here. Imagine a world. <laughs> in, it's 1924. Winnie the Pooh doesn't exist. That's right. That's the world we're going to walk through. And in this and podcast. and. A, a different approach to light verse and poetry, listeners. Absolutely. So, uh, should we head off? Um, the first place we're going to we're going to we're going to down to Chelsea. Uh, I didn't want to go there. You didn't. Lines and squares. Whenever I walk in a London street, I'm ever so careful to watch my feet, and I keep in the squares and the masses of bears who wait at the corners all ready to eat, the sillies who tread on the lines of the street, go back to their lairs. And I say to them, Bears, just look how I'm walking in all the squares. And the little bears growl to each other, He's mine, as soon as he's silly and steps on a line. And some of the bigger bears try to pretend that they came round the corner to look for a friend. And they try to pretend that nobody cares whether you walk on the lines or squares. But only the sillies believe their talk. It's ever so important how you walk. And it's ever so jolly to call out, Bears, just watch me walking in all the squares. More bears. He's edging towards more bear. He's definitely got bears on his mind. We're in Mallard Street in uh, Chelsea. We're a few, a few doors down from number 11, which was A.A. Milne's house which is absolutely lovely. There was a man in the window holding a baby. There was a man in the window holding his son, I think it was, looking how, out to the street. How can you tell from that distance? Oh, because I want it to be his son, I okay. suppose. Okay. That, that child should be in the nursery upstairs. Yeah, with, the, with, with, with Nanny. Because it's, it's, it's nearly gin o'clock. You don't it's really nearly get, gin you o'clock. get rid of the children. Yeah. This, was, this was his happy place, I think. And it's a very delightful street. It's very quiet, just off the King's Road. And this is uh, Clara Hawkins uh, visited the house... She said, uh, A.A. Milne lives in Chelsea, and there I went upon appointment. The maid returned and led me down a little hallway to a room at the end, the door of which she opened, at the same time announcing Miss Hawkins. Inside the room there was a bluish haze of nice-smelling pipe smoke, and inside the smoke there was a lean, pleasant young man. He got up lazily as if he were a little tired after a long tramp on the moors. That was my impression of him. Tweeds, dogs, gorse and a pipe. These are, this is relatively new, this street, for them. It, was, it, it didn't exist until 1909. Oh, really? a street. Just fields. Yeah. Um, there were loads of artists who live on this street. Well, I'm looking at Quite the well uh, a blue ones. plaque now. The house, this house was built for Augustus John. Yes. 1878 to 1961. So they would have been neighbor, he would have been a neighbour, would he? That, he? He would have been, yeah. I don't think he'd fit all his children in the nursery of that house. He, had a, he famously had dozens of... Oh, really? Children by various women. Oh. Yeah. Well, obviously, yes. painting was pretty lucrative back in those days. Clearly, the we house was help. built in 1913-14 by the Russian architect Boris Anrep from designs by a Dutch architect because it was based on Rembrandt's Amsterdam House. Um, it's a copy of Rembrandt's Amsterdam House. Apparently, it doesn't look like it an doesn't, Amsterdam does it? House to That's me. what it claims. Do you know who Augustus John sold that house to? And in fact, I think she would have then been a neighbour of A.A. Mill. 1935. No. Gracie Fields. No. Yeah, she lived in that house. Did she? Yeah. Wow. I just say, though, that thing about the bears and the paving stones, I can find that quite interesting because I read somewhere that um, that, um, that poem is about sort of paranoia and um, anxiety about what 
is, lies beneath the streets. It's a, again, we're going back to A.A. Milne's childhood of the great Western improvement. There's a London below. Right, yeah. yeah like we Neverwhere. Talk about our Secret Asian podcast. Yeah, and Neverwhere. Yeah. There's a London below. Okay. And if you don't, if you, if you hit the lines, you fall through the cracks. Mm. The bears get you. Mm. So there's an anxiety about a sort of under London. It's also an anxiety, I'll say this, about people ripping up the, the pavements. Yeah. Um, because in 1924, there was a big youth protest movement in France where they were rioting in Paris and throwing things. But isn't there one of those every decade? Well, that's the thing is that, as you'll know, Lloyd, yeah. one of the, you know, now that you're well, well briefed about 68 yeah. and Situationist International. Situationist International, how could I forget them? Sous les paves. Yeah. C'est le plage. The reason is, is that encouraged the students in 68. Paving in Paris was made up of um, little f- smaller flagstones or cobblestones. Yeah. They were much more easy to rip up and th- then throw, smash through windows and throw oh. at the police, right? So what do they do in London? They got rid of all the cobblestones, didn't they? Well, I just think that's sensible. Off you but go. underneath there, obviously, then when they lifted them up, there was sand. Yeah, the plage. La plage. Excellent. So I think A.A. Milne's expressing... Anxiety. So A. Milne is a closet situationist. Is that what we're saying? <laughs> no, I think he's against them. No, the I bears can't. are the bears are situationists. Halfway down the stairs is a stair where I sit. There isn't any other stair quite like it. <laughs> I'm not at the bottom. I'm not at the top. So this is the stair where I always. Stop. Halfway up the stairs isn't up and isn't down. It isn't in the nursery. It isn't in the town. And all sorts of funny thoughts run round my head. It isn't really anywhere. It's somewhere else. Instead. I like the way you're emphasising the uh, rather simple rhyme scheme there in that reading. That was very nice. That was really good. I think it's a little bit sarcastic. No, I think it's a bit Samuel Beckett. The, oh, si- the, the, the silence like is a, very important. Yeah, yeah. When he's Pinteresque. Yeah. <laughs> so in, we want to talk a little bit about A. A. Milne's life. Yes. There's a very lovely quote actually in the book Goodbye Christopher Robin, which is a, a biography of A. A. Milne and sort of Winnie the Pooh, and it is by Anne Thwaite. Frank Cottrell Boyce has a very very nice preface, uh, and he just says he says success simplifies. Quentin Crisp famously pointed out in a lecture that if you were to bring a distinguished old Yorkshireman onto the stage, the audience might be perplexed. But if he brought a polished abstract sculpture with a hole in the middle, the audience would cry out, Ah, Henry Moore! Well, I think it would depend on the audience. But anyway. So A. A. Milne's long career as poet, playwright, polemicist, peace campaigner and novelist is completely eclipsed by four short children's books, which, as he put it in 1952, he created... Little thinking, all my years of pen and inking, would be almost lost among those four trifles for the young. Oh. It's quite a good summary of his life, really. Yes. He was born in uh, January 1882. His parents ran a school. Yes, in, uh, in he's Kilburn. a schoolmaster. That's right. Uh, among the teaching staff of the school was H.G. Wells. He gets around that man, doesn't he? he? he How actually, many times have you mentioned him in podcasts? We were saying that in lots of ways... A.A. Milne, Alan, Alan Alexander Milne, yes. Alan, um, is the sort of 
cultural antithesis of H.G. Really? Wells. So H.G. Yeah. Wells, very poor background, struggled all the all, struggled for years to get noticed. Yes. worked incredibly hard. Took himself and his work intensely seriously. Yes, A. A. Milne, <laughs> not that like that at all. But taught at the school, uh, went up to uh, Cambridge or Oxford. Cambridge. He, he was at Trinity. Cambridge. He was a mathematician, actually. He, That's yeah. the weird thing. He's a mathmo. He he's not a, an English per, per, like Lewis Carroll. Another, yeah, another he, he's quite children's author. It's quite odd that he's um, a mathematician. But came out of uh, Cambridge and almost instantly became like deputy editor of Punch. Yes. It was just like, well, well, he, how, how did that happen? Well, he's obviously very clubbable. Very clubbable. Um, sort of writing, like, writing little jokes and sort of skits and things oh, and punch. Man. Started writing plays, all yeah. of which were very, very successful and now are almost entirely forgotten. Yeah. And then wrote a novel. Yes, uh, a, a detective a mystery, novel. A detective novel, also very successful, yes. now almost entirely forgotten. Mm. And he just seems to sort of knock this stuff out. The, um, the book itself, uh, when we were very young, was essentially written on holiday in Wales. Just staying rattled it friends, off. Staying with the guy who founded Port Merion. Weird. Created Port Merion some years later. Okay. And he basically, A.A. Uh, a. Milne got bored one day, went out into the summer house. It was raining because it's North Wales. And uh, and knocked off half of when we were very young in about a week. Wow. It's just incredible <laughs> ability to write quickly. He'll just write anything anywhere. Yeah. So the other thing that happened in his life, he, he married Daphne de Selincourt, who was yes. actually uh, the daughter of his godfather, I think. Oh, God. And they, he they kept met, it in the family. They, they met... They met they had a significant, significant encounter, encounter <laughs> in uh, in Switzerland. Yes, um, and uh, were engaged when they came back from holiday. And so Daphne, uh, they they were married, and then and then Christopher Robin, uh, Christopher Robin Milne, yeah, um, or Billy Moon, or, who they called, called intensely annoyingly Billy Moon. Well, posh people do that. They, they give, do, give they kids do. silly names. Uh, and uh, they were uh, he was born in 1920. Oh, just after the war, just, right? Just after the war. And uh, Milne did was in the war. Oh yeah, very uh, much so. He was at the Somme, but he but he claimed not to have fired a shot in anger at any stage. Well, he was training people in the Isle of Wight, wasn't he, for a large part? No, of the war. But, but no. But then he was a signals guy. So he in was. fact, it's one of the most dangerous things you could do out there. Was yeah. that he was running wires out across the no man's land to keep communications going. Yeah, signals people were the most. They were they got injured a lot. He got injured. He got injured and came back came back to England, right? Yeah. Well, the, the, I have been reading stuff that seems to intimate that part of his curious sort of diffidence and affability comes from him masking a quite serious uh, shell shock he uh, suffered from for right. the rest of his life. And I, I found some very good articles that, that talk that you can find this in um, in his poems and in the Winnie the Pooh books, is that. <laughs> Obviously, we were talking out on the street about um, his fear of bears coming to get him. Well, I think we know what that is, don't we? Uh, Russian bears. (laughs) But also that the first Pooh bear story, we'll come on to the creation of Pooh, is about buzzing bees and popping balloons. Yeah. So loud, loud worrying noises (laughs) that he's trying to get to grips with. Loud noises in forests. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Okay. So it's all there. Skating forward to after the book, obviously he has huge success with the book. We'll talk about the response Squillions, to the book. yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about the response to the book. You know, after the, after the, these four books, so the, when we were very young, Winnie the Pooh. Now We Are Six. Now We Are Six. House at Pooh Corner. House at Pooh Corner, yeah. Come on now. Yeah, I can't remember them. I mean, he carried on writing. He was sort of yeah. plays and stuff like that, but nothing, nothing. nearly as successful. No. Died in the 50s. Became sort of slightly strange from... From Christopher Robin, slightly, yeah. very. He was he's written a couple of memoirs, Christopher Mill, and um, which are quite interesting. Uh, the first one he's quite angry, and the second one 
he's a bit more sort of pensive about his yeah. father and stuff. Yeah. But he does say, it's almost that my father has got to where he was by climbing upon my infant shoulders, that he had filched from me my good name and left me with the empty fame of being his son. Wow. That's quite something, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Well, well I think it was his mum, though, who was quite keen on pushing him forward. She was the one who organised sort of PR events with Christopher Robin with a bear and Christopher yeah. Robin's uh, party in the woods and uh, well, the Christopher, thing... Christopher Robin singing the songs of when we were... You know, he had to go to a recording studio and sing uh, the songs from when we were very young. And he got bullied about that at school, didn't he? Well, he went to a public school. What do you expect? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the other, but the other thing about interesting thing about him, he, he also said he, would, he, he wouldn't take any money from the books, right? He's made no money from the estate. Well, he refused to take any money. And Daphne sold all her rights, literally like the week after Alan Milne died, she sold all her rights. To Disney, right? To Disney. So that rather bleak, uh, we'll, we'll leave that rather bleak picture in your head now. That's where he is in 1924, though, isn't yeah. it? Is yeah. that he's, he's, not, he's not Winnie the Pooh man. He's, no, he's a, he's a punch man. He's a punch man. He's a broken soldier, I'd he's, say. Yeah, uh, uh, hiding it very well, masking it, writing a series of light verse and some quite intricate and interesting sounding plays, none, none of which we can remember or will have seen. Well, there's what, Mr. Pym Passes By, apparently, yeah. is his great it's work. A massive hit. Yep. Yeah. And all his plays were hits in some ways or other. They were yeah, yeah. fantastically yeah, well. Yeah. Um, but should we go back out on the road now and uh, join uh, Christopher Robin and his nurse? Ah. Uh, who are outside a large building in central London. Yes, and, and the obsession with bears goes on, mate, because there's a load of bearskins. A load of bearskins. How are you? And how are you getting on with self-isolation or lockdown or whatever it is in your part of the world? But do remember, it's very important at the moment that we stay away from other people for our own health, but more importantly, for the lives of others. So I hope you're there and you're enjoying yourself and you're finding things to do. And look what I did. I found a book I loved when I was a kid. I'll read you a couple of little poems for it. If I were king, I often wish I were a king and then I could do anything. If only I were king of Spain, I'd take my hat off in the rain. If only I were king of France, I wouldn't brush my hair for aunts. I think if I were king of Greece, I'd push things off the mantelpiece. If I were king of Norway, I'd ask an elephant to stay. If I were king of Babylon, I'd leave my button gloves undone. If I were king of Timbuktu, I'd think of lovely things to do. If I were king of anything, I'd tell the soldiers, I'm the king. They're changing guard at Buckingham Palace. Christopher Robin went down with Alice. Alice is marrying one of the guard. A soldier's life is terribly hard, says Alice. They're changing guard at Buckingham Palace. Christopher Robin went down with Alice. We saw a guard in a sentry box. One of the sergeants looks after their socks, says Alice. They're changing guard at Buckingham Palace. Christopher Robin went down with Alice. We looked for the king, but he never came. Well, God take care of him all the same, says Alice. They're changing guard at Buckingham Palace. Christopher Robin went down with Alice. They have great big parties inside the grounds. I wouldn't be king for a hundred pounds, says Alice. They're changing guard at Buckingham Palace. Christopher Robin went down with Alice. A face looked out, but it wasn't the King's. He's much too busy assigning things, says Alice. 
They're changing guard at Buckingham Palace. <laughs> Christopher Robin went down with Alice. Do you think the King knows all about me? Sure to, dear. But it's time for tea, says Alice. Do you think the King knows all about me, Tim? <laughs> We're looking at a guard. I'll tell you who was looking out that window, though. Prince uh, Andrew's still got an administrative office here. <laughs> an administrative office. He's peeking out of the window because he's not allowed on the balcony. He's not allowed out in public. <laughs> if you hadn't guessed, we are outside Buckingham Palace. And we've just seen the sentries go up and down. The sentries go up and down. We haven't, uh, we, we haven't seen any faces at the windows. No, we haven't, no. It's, um, it's five days after the coronation? Yes. Um, there's still a lot of fencing up, Very a lot of slack. aluminium barriers. Very slack. They should have this down within 24 hours. Yes, what kind it, of country is this? No, no, it's not good, is it? I think that's very um, poor. But uh, it's, it's, it's a bit wet, but there's still lots of tourists it's around. It's drying out now. And uh, obviously mentioned of the king, and now we have a king. That's right. So it's very relevant. Yes. Um, but she wouldn't have been here with Alice. Well... No, so but Christopher something, Robin's something's, nanny. Something's got to, to rhyme with yeah, Palace. Yeah, he would have struggled with Olive. Olive Rand was his nursery, was his nurse. Oh. Uh, but he, Christopher Robin called her New. New? Uh, there's, a, there's a good bit about, uh, about um, her in the biography. The English mother is fortunate, said Daphne Milne in an interview in New York in 1931, forgetting all the English mothers who weren't. Good line. The English mother is fortunate in being able to place such full confidence in her children's nurse. Often the trusted and beloved nanny remains in the employ of the family for years. She is especially trained for her work, which she regards as a real profession, worthy of her pride and deepest interest. Now, Olive, Olive Rand, they stayed, she stayed with the Mills until 1930. Wow. When Christopher went to boarding school. And the two of them lived Did on the top floor. Did she then go floor. down to the West Country to live with a butler? Yeah. The two of them lived on the top floor of the house in Mallard Street in adjoining day and night nurseries. Christopher said, So much were we together that Nanny became almost a part of me. Other people hovered around the edges, but they meant little. My total loyalty was to her. It's just a lost world to us, isn't it? The idea that you would have a, yeah. a, 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 a nanny basically raising your child for you in the house that you live in. Yes. And then send it off to boarding school. The changing of the guard. Yeah. Do you know when that started as a thing? No. It started, and this is amazing actually, it started ceremonially with music. The change was made for the first time on Tuesday, the 13th of January 1903. Basically, that ceremony that we now have every other day when it's not raining yeah. started in 1903. But the changing of the guard actually dates from 1818. It's only down at St James's Palace in here that they do it, right? Right. But in those days, did you know that there were guard, night guards at the Bank of England? Drury Lane Theatre, Covent Garden Opera House, and at the Tower of London as well. They guarded the Opera House. Mm. There was a change of guard at the Opera House. Until Guarded against what? I don't know. I like this, though. Until 1959, the sentries at Buckingham Palace were stationed outside the fence. They would have been out here where we are. Until 1955? Uh, 59. 59? Yeah. This stopped following an incident involving a female tourist and a Coldstreet guardsman. <laughs> Due to the continued pestering by tourists and sightseers, the guardsman kicked the tourist on the ankle <laughs> as he marched. The tourist made a complaint to the police and the sentry was confined to barracks for ten days, not long after the sentries were moved inside the fence. <laughs> There's lots of stories of um, sentries being bothered by tourists. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you still uh, see it, they don't, don't know how to behave. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, Chris, Christopher Robin was doing very well, not to yeah. not to bother anyone. I thought. And finally, my last bit of intro. We were talking earlier about um, A. A. Milne not liking jazz. 
No, he doesn't like jazz or, 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 or spirits. Yeah. And um, you don't like jazz either? No, not really, no. So why have you brought us to what is a building that has a venue that has made one of the greatest contributions to jazz music in the United Kingdom? What, Buckingham Palace? Yeah, it's the centre of jazz, man. <laughs> Groovy. So explain, explain, explain. Again, George V. I was into his jazz. Bit of a jazz man. He arranged a series of command performances featuring jazz musicians such as... George V? Yes. Original Dixieland jazz band uh, in 1919. Yeah. Sidney Bechet and Louis Armstrong. Louis Armstrong played here? Yes. For George V? Yes. That's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Yeah. It's the home of Dixieland Jazz. Good old George V. They're not racist at all. <laughs> Ooh, bit of a stretch. Um, I, well, I don't know what to say to that, really. So he's picked, I, well, the thing is, A.A. Milne should have been told, shouldn't he? He wouldn't have come. I don't think he would have done a... Sp- They're playing jazz at Buckingham Palace. <laughs> They're playing jazz at Buckingham Palace. Christopher Milne went down with Alice. No, because then he could just say, going down with Olive, because he doesn't need to rhyme. It's jazz. It's jazz. <laughs> went down with Olive. Now, what does rhyme with Olive? <laughs> Nothing right with olive. Is it like orange? Orange. <laughs> yeah, okay. There we are. That's, uh, I, think that's I don't all. know how to close this now. It's like a jazz song. <laughs> I have to fade out. You're listening to the Curiously Specific Book Club podcast, the podcast that is curiously specific about dates and locations in well-known books. If you want to listen to the second part of our AA Milne adventure, you can do so right now. It's waiting for you on the server if you sign up to our Patreon page. Yes, just go to patreon.com and search for Curiously Specific, and there you will find a way to spend two of your English pounds to get access to our wonderful community of supporters who get access to photos, videos, maps, uh, posts. You get all the links to all the stuff we've, we've talked about in the podcast, all our reference work. Uh, if you stump up five pounds, you can join our coterie, our inner core yes. of, uh, of uh, uh, Discord server acolytes who join us on our, on our chat room on Discord server. And yeah. We have really good chats about books we might do, books we have done, field trips. Uh, everyone has something interesting to say about books we've done. And well, they've, we've out, they've outdone us that recently, haven't they? Because with our, In Pursuit of Spring, they've done more research than we had. It's extraordinary. They knew stuff we, I'd never heard of. Yeah, and then, then corrected us about the fact that why road the village R-O-D-E became road R-O-A-D well, in, in 1909 or something. And it was a county council thing that I completely missed. <laughs> I, I felt very ashamed. Well, yeah, as, yeah, I was going to say, county borders, man, you've yeah. got to watch out. You're going to get, look, yeah. yeah, you're going to lose your job to a woman in New Zealand. Yeah, very well, yeah, <laughs> to Pauline in New Zealand. So yeah, join us, join us on there and it's really, really good fun. It is. Um, if you don't sign up to our Patreon page, you'll have to wait a week to hear the uh, second episode. Yeah, of you won't know where Winnie the Pooh was invented, will no, you? No, and you'll have to listen to it with ads, unfortunately but them's the breaks. Yeah, well, back to the podcast. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So When We Were Very Young was published in November 1924. Yes, what an interesting year. What have you got for me? Well, of course, there were two general elections. I think one of the things... We Labour's have first Prime Minister. The first Labour Prime Minister. Ramsay MacDonald. Yes, it didn't last long, though, did he? About 10 months, wasn't it? This thing about bears goes on, doesn't it? <laughs> right? Okay. Is that your theme? Well, because in this year, what's, what's really worrying everybody is the, the Russian bear, the communism, the spread of communism. Yeah, yeah. So what, what lost the, the second election of the year was the Zinoviev letter. Yeah which claimed that the Russian Communist Party had been talking to the British Communist Party about how to become Armed more... insurrection. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So then everybody voted Conservative. Published in? In? The Daily Mail. Ah. Uh, right. I, I thought you were going to say Punch magazine for no, a minute. No, no, no. I was like, wow. Published in the Daily Mail and, of course, famously, completely made up, right? Yes, a complete fake. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, A.A. Milne, I imagine, wasn't very, wasn't very happy about communists. I can't see him being very... I mean, he was slightly... He was very liberal. And, very uh, liberal, but not communist. Passive, no, he wasn't a communist. I mean, they don't, golfers don't play... Well, golfers can't be communists, can they? <laughs> they just, I don't think he took anything... It's not in the rules. He, did, he couldn't take it seriously enough to be a communist. Well, the other thing that's uh, in the air are death rays. What? Death rays. I was reading about this chap, Harry Grindle Matthews who announced right. in 1924 that he had invented a death ray. Yeah. invented an electric ray that would put magnetos out of action. And he was contacted by the, um, uh, the war office in ni- February 1924 uh, to request a demonstration. And this becomes a theme of his life, <laughs> that people request a demonstration of this thing he's invented, and he refuses to give them one. Quite right. If I Basically, tell you I've got a death de- ray, I've got a death ray. That's it. a huge it. public furore. The government was worried that he was going to sell his death ray to a foreign power, <laughs> presumably <laughs> Russia. Hey, Emil, um, Mr. Trickhead, is, I've got a death ray, a great big death ray. Yeah. <laughs> the government required that Matthews would use the ray to stop a petrol motorcycle engine in the conditions that would satisfy the air ministry. He would receive £1,000 in further consideration. So by this time, he legged it to France. Yeah. From France, Matthews answered that he was not willing to give any proof of that kind, and he already had eight bids to choose from. No, oh, yeah. he didn't. Okay. He also claimed that he had lost sight in his left eye because of experiments. But, that, of course, that wasn't the only death ray that was demonstrated. Well, there was another in death 1924? Ray, there was another death ray that was actually demonstrated in 1924. Really? Yep, uh, which has actually t- turned out to be far more dangerous and insidious. Yes. John Logie Bird oh. sent the first TV signal. Logie Bird? Logie Bird. John Logie Bird <laughs> sent the first TV signal in Hastings, of all places. Ah. That's where he, where he demonstrated the TV signal. The best signal. place to watch television. So while everyone was watching the death ray over there, the actual death ray, the, actual the one death that was going to fry people's brains, yes. was uh, being demonstrated on the south coast of England. I was too distracted by the news that it was also the year of the first British nudist camp. It was. It was. <laughs> in, uh, in Essex, of course. Yes, of course. A uh, few, few writery deaths. In yes, 1924, yeah. uh, Joseph Conrad yeah. died in 1924. Yeah. E. Nesbitt. Well, she's in an interesting person. She's very she? interesting. Railway yeah. children, but yeah. also she's a big socialist. She's a big socialist. So, uh, big Fabian. And then Francis Hodgson Burnett yeah, died, died in 1924. Two big giants of She's the Secret Garden. That's another book I'd love to do as Q-Specs. Yeah, Find yeah. the Secret Garden would be very good. Of course, Lenin died that year, and Woodrow Wilson, in fact. Right. So, so some of the big World War I figures... 
which maybe A.M. Milne was quite pleased about, see the back of that part of his life. Do you and have then, anything else in 1924? Well, I do have one other thing I'd like to talk about, because why wouldn't you talk about Walter Hagen? Walter Hagen? Walter Hagen. I don't know he that had name. had a big year in 1924. And uh, A.A. Milne would probably class this guy as one of his heroes. He is a golfer. <laughs> his tally of 11 professional majors is third behind Jack Nicklaus and Tiger Woods. He's, he's, one of the, he's the father of professional golf. And this is why A.A. Milne wouldn't like him, yeah. is that he was the first guy to really make a living wholly out of playing golf. And as a result, he, this year, that year in 1924, he won the Open Championship and the PGA Championship in the same year. But he was never allowed in the clubhouse because the clubhouse is only for amateurs and somebody who makes their money out of golf is not welcome oh, in God. the clubhouse. Seriously? Absolutely seriously. Was he American or he British? was a key? F- yeah, he was American, but he spent a lot of time in Europe, yeah. m- making doing exhibition matches and yeah. winning stuff and making shed loads of money. And he was very showy, apparently. Uh, he had a really, you know, he, he'd turn up in a Rolls Royce and he had really pucker kit, and he was sponsored by a club. He was the first guy to get clubs designed with his name on and then selling them with his name on. The Walter Hagen. Yeah, exactly. He's he's amazing, and he had a chauffeur. And um, he'd turn up at the clubhouse, and then they wouldn't let him in. He had to get changed in his car. <laughs> it's serious. And serious. Wow. And it, it was, he, he was the first guy, professional, who, because of his status by 1924, he was, he, he was winning so much, they ended up saying, oh, uh, we'll, we'll let you in, old boy. Okay. Yeah, you've done very well. Well done. You're one of us now. Yeah, A.M. Milne would... Yeah. Would have hated him. Him and P.G. Woodhouse would, would be, be looking out the clubhouse window. Look at him in his car. Who's that? Who's that fellow getting changed? Look at in him his in his car. car. God, A terrible almighty. man. Awful man. <laughs> there are lions and roaring tigers and enormous camels and things. There are buffalo, buffalo bisons, and a great big bear with wings. There's a sort of a tiny potamus, and a tiny noceros too. But I gave buns to the elephant when I went down to the zoo. There are badgers and bidgers and bodgers, and a superintendent's house. There are masses of goats, and a polar, and different kinds of mouse. And I think there's a sort of a something which is called a wallaboo. But I gave buns to the elephant when I went down to the zoo. If you try to talk to the bison, he never quite understands. You can't shake hands with a mingo. He doesn't like shaking hands. And lions and roaring tigers hate saying how do you do. But I give buns to the elephant when I go down to the zoo. What's a mingo? I don't know what a mingo is. We need to look that up. I'm not sure what a um, a wallaboo is either. <laughs> is he making animals up now? Ridiculous. Do you think he is? So you might be able to hear, uh, listener, that we are sitting beside London Zoo. <laughs> I don't know what that is. What is that making that noise? Is it a wallaboo or a mingo? I think they've reacted very strongly to your poetry recitation. <laughs> I think you might get arrested for parrot worrying. Parrotry. 
We've obviously come to London Zoo uh, to read that poem. We're not paying to go in, though. No, not, not at these prices. It's about 30 quid, isn't it? Yeah, it's expensive. But there's another reason to come here, of course. Yes. The original Winnie the Bear was to be found in London Zoo. So this is the bear that he took his son... This is he took the name from. Right. There have been many explanations of Winnie the Pooh's name, so many that it is a wonder Milne did not just make a story out of them in the manner of the Just So stories. There is no question that the Winnie part came from a female black bear called Winnie, after Winnipeg, who was one of the most popular animals in the London Zoo during this period. Christopher, Mil- Christopher Milne certainly met this bear on more than one occasion. There are various accounts of how he reacted. His father, as reported by Enid Blyton, would say... The bear hugged Christopher Robin and they had a glorious time together, rolling about and pulling ears and all sorts of things. It sounds rather hazardous. So basically they visited They visited here in the early 20s uh, and met the bear. I think after it, um, Winnie the Pooh became famous, he did some press phot- photography. The, ki- the kid was made to do... With the bear? Yeah. There is a picture in the biography yeah. of him standing next to the bear. Seems a bit... The bears haven't been here, by the way, since 1985. Do you know no. why? Well, I think I remember coming to see the bears in the early 80s. Yeah. And it was a rather sad affair. They're bear mountain, didn't they? Didn't they have a place where they... They did, but what happened was, I think really the polar bear ruined it for everybody else, for the brown bears. Right. Because well, as we now know, polar bears don't do well in zoos. No. And they, they get this form of dementia from not being able to sort of wander and uh, predate, etc., etc. But everyone just thought they were a bit lonely or whatever. But in fact, they were just being sent quietly mad. Right. Uh, if you've ever been to Berlin Zoo, there was a polar bear there that rocked it, rocked persistently on a rock. Oh. And it was very upsetting to watch. Do you think Winnie might have had a bit of that then? Well, the brown bears, they decided it wasn't a good idea to keep bears there. And they moved them to Whipsnade right. Zoo. The safari park. Yes. And um, they also moved um, the elephants there as well in 2001. So if you're looking for the elephants and bears, of which A.A. Milne is obsessed with elephants and bears. He's obsessed with them. You can't see either of them at London Zoo anymore. No. Um, But for for very good reasons, I'd have to say. I suppose there must have been something quite astounding about being able to go and see an elephant in London back in the day. Well, I'm thinking that this is more a memory of A.A. Milne's childhood than his son's childhood. I think he's thinking about um, Jumbo, who was the most famous um, um, elephant at at London Zoo. But here's the thing about feeding an elephant lots of buns. I found here... On, on the London Zoo site, actually. I can't believe you looked up <laughs> the downsides of feeding buns to elephants. You are such a buzzkill. <laughs> well, let's just... This is London Zoo calling. <laughs> what they say is that in the story about uh, Jumbo, um, as he grew older, Jumbo's behaviour began to change because he was apparently quite a friendly guy. Yeah. And allowed children to ride on his back, and they would feed him. They lots allowed children to ride on his back. Yes, and they fed him lots of sticky buns. Different right? times. He remained calm during his daily walks around the zoo. He just walked around the zoo. <laughs> At night, he became increasingly aggressive and violent, 
cracking the doors of his house and in one instance actually breaking off his tusks. It was thought Ooh. of the... Yeah, exactly. It was thought at the time that this could have been due to him entering musth. M-U-S-T-H. You ever heard that word before? No. Musth. A period of aggression seen in bull elephants due to a rise in reproductive hormones. Have you ever had a period of musth, Lloyd? Yeah, I think... It's, 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 yeah. um, now, however... and It was a Thursday afternoon in 1982. <laughs> now, however, it is thought his aggression most likely stemmed from toothache caused in part by the diet of sticky buns fed to him by visitors to the zoo. Mm. So basically... Christopher Milne and A.A. Milne sent the poor old Jumbo mad with toothache. With buns. That's the dark side of that poem. Right. So, When We Were Very Young was an incredibly successful book, wasn't it? Mind-boggling. Published in London on the 6th of November, 1924, and in New York on the 20th of November. Sold out almost instantly by the end of the year, so less than eight weeks after publication. In the UK, Methuen had sold over 43,000 copies. Wow. Which is a lot for that time. He sure is. John McCrae of Dutton's, published a fortnight later, had already sold 10,000 in America. In the, the key point is that it sold really well in America, didn't it? It sold really, really well. And I think well if you're listening, you might be surprised to know that it sold more copies than uh, Winnie the Pooh. So by 1927, uh, which is when Now We Are Six came out, They'd sold 260,000 copies of When We Were Young, when we were very young in America. Yeah. Um, At Methuen, this is from uh, uh, Anth Waite's book, at Methuen there was a packer's strike. So someone from the production department later remembered how he and every available person had volunteered to try and keep up the demand as booksellers' orders for thousands of copies poured into the office every day. This is the thing that I found amazing, Mm. the letters of appreciation. Did you read this? No. In America. The letters of appreciation came pouring in from 38 state governors, six members of the cabinet, three justices of the Supreme Court, 11 rear admirals, 12 major generals, and everyone from Hendrik van Loon to Fred Astaire. One letter headed F. Siegfeld, New Amsterdam Theatre, was from Lupino Lane and read like this, I have to do an extra tumble tonight in the follies, slide down a flight of steps or jump through an extra trap door. Why, you ask? Oh, simply to express my exuberance over the fun I got in reading A.A. Milne's When We Were Very Young. Even President Coolidge was delighted by the book, his secretary said. So adults went mad for it. Yes, that's interesting, isn't it? It, I think it is partly to do, isn't it, with trying to, with the 1920s bright young, of the idea that the war is now a a thing of the past and we must all have fun, 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 and everything must be light and merry. But then, uh, but then, uh, interestingly, that's you know the, the 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 tide began to turn, sort of in the thirties yeah. and forties, and quite a lot of people started to say, "Well, this is all a bit ridiculous, twee, twee. whimsy." Um, I think it was a word used famously, quite a lot. Um, the most famous kind of response is probably Dorothy Parker. Um, yes, who's got a bit of a nerve, I'd say, because yeah. she's not averse to light verse. Yeah, in in of uh, 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 well, she wrote her light like verse of her own, right? Exactly. So, and, um, and I think she, uh, it's it's also it's it's the criticism of somebody who, of uh, that she once sort of admired and 
Nay worshipped as, yeah. as she she was keen on Nay Milne and the punch writers and their their sort of light comic way of writing. Yeah. So then when she turned on him, I think it was all the more vicious. So it started in 1927. She's in the New Yorker. Mm. She started writing about Now We Are Six. Yeah. And then she wrote. Uh, she was her, she wrote as constant reader. That was her. Her nom de plume in the New York. Yes, that's right. While we're on the subject of whimsies, how about taking up Mr. A. A. Milne? There is a strong feeling, I know, that to speak against Mr. Milne puts one immediately in the ranks of those who set fire to orphanages, strike crippled newsboys and lure little curly heads off into corners to explain to them that Santa Claus is only daddy making a fool of himself. But I, too, have a very strong feeling about the whimsicality of Milne. I'm feeling it right this minute. It's in my stomach. (laughs) Uh, uh, it's her response to that poem the the more it the more it snows the more the tiddly pom that she gets really fed up with and she says that the above lyric is culled from the house of Pooh Corner but she she ends up saying tiddly what said Piglet (laughs) he took as you might say the very words out of your correspondent's mouth pom said Pooh I put that in to make it more hummy (laughs) and it is that word hummy my darlings that makes the first place in the house at Pooh Corner at which Tonstant Weeder flowed up. (laughs) (laughs) James James Morrison Morrison, Weatherby George Dupree, took great care of his mother, though he was only three. James James said to his mother, Mother, he said, said he, you must never go down to the end of the town if you don't go down with me. James James Morrison's mother put on a golden gown. James James Morrison's mother drove to the end of the town. James James Morrison's mother said to herself, said she, I can get right down to the end of the town and be back in time for tea. Where could he mean the end of the town? What does he mean by the end of the town? The the illustration is a little boy on a tricycle and a mother in a very glamorous 1920s yes. outfit. Yes, on the, on the way out for a, for a bit of a, a night on the town. Yeah, yeah. You know, they were living in Chelsea uh, when that was written. Yes. Uh, you've, we've already said that Chelsea at the time was a fairly new, or this part of Chelsea was a fairly new suburb. It was. Um, quite a lot of new housing. Um, so it would have felt quite near the edge of the town. Yeah. Uh, but what would actually, what, what would it be involved in going down to the end of the town? So I, th- so I got got to thinking, Tim. Yeah. Where where he could be talking about, and of course I thought of, the world's end. Yeah. Which is a pub, uh, on the King's Road. When we were very young. When we were very young, it used to be oh. a haunt of, a slightly debauched haunt of old rock stars, and uh, it never it was quite unreconstructed for a long time, given that it's technically in Chelsea, right? Well, it goes back a long way. This pub. It was, it, you know, it was the World's End. Back, I think it was built around the time, or the original one was built around the time of Charles II. Yep. And it had a. It, it was called that then. Yep. As for for people to come down the river from way up that way to yeah. come and have a high old time. Yeah. So it's uh, um, it's now surrounded by. Well, we should describe where we are. We're sitting on the King's Road. Yeah. Um, corner of Langton Street. The World's End pub is unfortunately, tragically. Uh, closed uh, they somebody I think rather misguidedly tried to turn it into a champagne bar called the Chelsea Fun House yeah, that's which obviously I took against quite violently when I realised well, I, I walked past this a few months ago and it was still open yeah. but now it's all shut up and do you know what killed it? Uh, what killed it? 
they use the word immersive on the front of it. They've got an, an immersive, immersive 1940s bar yeah. in the basement. Put that name on any, anything and it'll kill it. So we've just walked from uh, A.A. Milne's house on Mallard Street. Yeah. It's about a 10-minute walk. I'm thinking if Daphne Milne wanted to get away from the, the two men in her house playing with their toys, she had two options. <laughs> she could head... Turn left or turn she right. She could head east uh, to the shops. <laughs> Peter Jones. Could, or she could head west to the world's end for yeah. a sneaky drink yeah. in, her, in her finery. No, so I, I quite like, like the idea of her coming down here for a, um, a gin and it uh, with the... Uh, I like uh, it. I think when she's done all her way. shopping at Peter Jones for all the knickknacks she, she needs for the house, it comes down then here. she yeah. she asks them to deliver it there and meanwhile uh, and, she disappears for an hour little Christopher Robin says, Where have you been, Mama? I've been shopping. I've been to the world's end, darling. That's it. The world's end. Yeah, Good. And he never got out of his head. I was very pleased to see that the World's End shop, the Vivian Westman shop, is yeah, still there. Still there with the clock. I thought it had shut down. With the clock. With a spinning clock. Um, that was quite a place. It was Before it was World's End, it was called Sedition? Yes. And before that, it was called Sex. Yes. Did you ever go in there then? No. Well, I wasn't old enough. I, was don't, I, want to, I don't want to upset you by saying, oh, I used to hang out here. But Well, I'm sure you did, <laughs> but you're a couple of years older than me. I, don't think, I mean, was Sex was... 75, 76, wasn't it? Something like that, yeah. Um, 74, shop assistant Glenn Matlock and future base of Sex Pistols helped erect the pink rubberized letters of sex on yeah. the front door. It says here, it doesn't mention this pub, by the way, Vivian would tell us all the funny things that had gone on in the shop, like businessmen trying on rubber behind the screen, and then we'd hang out at the little golden triangle of pubs around there, the water rat, the man in the moon and the roebuck, and later we'd watch Adam and the Ants and X-Ray Specs performing upstairs. Very good. Good times. Good times. Do you think Daphne would be doing that? Going in there I, do you know to what, look if, at a I bit of rubberware and then go and see Adam and the Ants. If Daphne had been <laughs> 16 in the 70s, I can kind of see her doing that. This guy who worked there said, even at the time, people didn't really walk much further than the old town hall, which was about halfway down from Sloane Square. Yeah. So it was off limits in it the 70s. It's quite a liminal space, isn't it, Tim? Oh, you've used that word. When you're coming out, when you're coming down the King's Road, there is a point where it all gets a bit grimy. Yes. Well, I have to tell you, you're lucky that I haven't taken you to another gritty estate, as in uh, what estate behind us? Yeah, the, uh, I've seen an article that's uh, from 2017. World's End Estate exemplifies fault lines of dramatic inequality. Mm. The brick towers of the World's End Estate. Yes. Right behind yeah, it's you. Yeah, right in the middle of Chelsea, isn't it? If we walk that way, there's two different worlds. It, it says, is. on those roads there, across there, they all have Range Rovers. It's yes, like it's side, been a set-up. The other side of the King's Road. And there's the a case. Paddy Power and a William Hill on this side. Yeah. Um, it's quite an interesting article, this, I have to say, and I'll be posting the link. To our Patreon subscribers. To our Patreon subscribers. It's a, it, 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 it really does show you the difference here. They shove everyone that's not middle class over here, explained Yusuf, who's studying electrical engineering at college, and described the inequality as not upsetting, just unfair. The majority of people live on benefits. Um, meanwhile, I like this, though. Uh, so he's suggesting they shove rich people in there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure what the social engineering is going to involve. Well, it says here, on the rich side, you see, well, you'd be friends with Paul Warwick then, a lawyer who has lived in the area for 44 years and represents Stanley Ward for the Conservatives. All right. There are bound to be differences. 
and nobody I come across objects to the differences. There's no denying differences in social structure, but it doesn't mean we don't get on. <laughs> he said that one or two friends of his in, uh, live in World's End, but he stressed they had bought their properties. <laughs> If you go on to the estate, there are people in middle-class clothing, he added. There are people in cord trousers. Oh, my God. <laughs> you, also, you also made, obviously, the obvious reference to another Jim Morrison. Yes, prefiguring, isn't it? Death Pre by Water Death is. Death by Water, Death yeah. by Water is all over these poems. Yeah. As you said, it's a T.S. Eliot thing, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Death by Water. Yeah. We're getting on to the big Death by Water in part two. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, Jim Morrison. Yeah. Why would he pick a name like James Morrison if he wasn't prefiguring the death of a great rock star in a bath. That is obviously what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Vespers. Little boy kneels at the foot of the bed, drops on the little hands, little gold head. Hush, hush, whisper who dares. Christopher Robin is saying his prayers. God bless Mummy. I know that's right. Wasn't it fun in the bath tonight? The cold's so cold and the hot so hot. Oh, God bless Daddy, I quite forgot. If I open my fingers a little bit more, I can see Nanny's dressing gown on the door. It's a beautiful blue, but it hasn't a hood. Oh, God bless Nanny and make her good. Mine has a hood and I lie in bed and pull the hood right over my head. And I shut my eyes and I curl up small, and nobody knows that I'm there at all. Oh, thank you, God, for a lovely day. And what was the other I had to say? I said, bless Daddy, what can it be? Oh, now I remember. God bless me. Little boy kneels at the foot of the bed, droops on the little hand's little gold head. Hush, hush, whisper who dares. Christopher Robin is saying his prayers. That was the zinger in that book. It was so popular. Massive, you know, they made a special imprint for the, for the the king demanded to have it. Well, it was the first out. poem that was actually released because it was it was put into a doll's house. Yeah. Uh, it, so it's actually owned by the queen's doll's house, That's which it. is like a miniature doll's house. So they had a little book uh, in in the doll's house. Right. And it was the first one that actually people saw because I think it was in the papers or something. Like right. That. So it's um, massive. It was absolutely massive. And still, you know. People had it on their walls yes. as, a, as a little homily. Yes. This is the end of part one yep. of this uh, adventure with A.A. Milne. We will return in part two in a week's time. We're going uh, out into the country. We're going out into the country. Uh, we have actually already recorded that. It's already there and available. But you have to sign up to our Patreon page. That's right. For £2. And you can listen to it right now. Yes. We we're talking about a spot of golf. We're going for a spot of golf. Uh, a, spot uh, of, uh, a spot of a, swan hunting. A swan on a pond. And uh, then a farm and with then a rock going... star standing on a sundial. <laughs> you get it we all always, in this podcast. We go to interesting places. So we'll see you in a week's time. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. 
Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.